what, why you shouldn't meditate is because um, somebody's pressuring you to, you know, mm-hmm. because I think whenever, whenever a new health thing becomes very popular, then there's a like, I need to do that, you know, and now that meditation apps are like billion dollar industries, you know, like Headspace or Calm or things like this. I think there's like kind of a social pressure that like, I know I, and it's almost like people say it, like, I know I should get my head clean, you know, like, like, as if you were like, you know, it was like a tooth whitener for your brain or something like that. Most of us are just terrified of ourselves, you know, like, we're just like, and terrified of, of our own mind, you know, and that's really, really sad when you think about it, like that, that this is this is your home for this lifetime is your body and your mind. And most of us just are scared to form a relationship with it alone, you know, and unfortunately technology is getting better and better at, you know, snapping up those moments where we could actually really be with ourselves and um, giving us a distraction. Hello and welcome to the inspired astrology podcast. I'm your guide. Lauren K. Hickman. How are you today? What's going on? Where are you? (laughs) That question is going to be a pervading theme throughout this episode. Um, I have very special guest Ethan Nickturn on today, and I'm going to be reading from his book, The Road Home, and talking to this triple cancer about their experience of home, amongst many other topics. Um, (laughs) I've had a weird week. How have you been? (laughs) I just finished up cleaning, uh, my kitchen out after my ceiling collapsed in last night, uh, finished up the new moon and cancer report, hit send, went and, uh, got a little food ready, cleaned up, went upstairs and then boom, everything crashed down. Uh, everybody's okay. Dragon is fine. Tree is fine. I am fine. Um, but I, I feel like nothing shocks me anymore. Is anyone else in that, in that place in their life right now where it's like, oh, of course that would happen. Why not? Right. Everything is, is upside down. You're leaking, right? We're leaking. You're leaking. So you begin the search with some difficulty, Where is this spring erupting from? Is it in my body, my mind, my emotions? Searching overactive tear ducts in hopes to locate the source and find to no avail, only an exit point. Tear ducts are merely a release valve. So you search again and you seek that ache inside your chest, this volcano beating life's rhythms. No, no, the leak is, it's not there. It isn't. So you grab for belly fat and your side thighs and seek comfort or solace in these spaces of your skin and know to no avail. There's no leak. So you check your feet and the bubbling wells are sealed. So you have to continue the search. Is this leak somewhere outside of you? Maybe it's raining. Maybe someone else's spittle is landing on my skin. Where is the source? Where is this source? You ponder. Ah, 
It's there. Childhood, patterns, family forces, ancestral, melancholic, internalized rage. You point your finger towards your belly button. There, there it is. You follow the spring, the underground streams, the rivers and reservoirs inside of you. These emotions, they run deep. These cisterns of elemental fluids, origins of and vessels to all the stories and memories that have carried you. Why are they not flowing? Where's the blockage? Why is there a well of sadness and resentment and rage stagnating deeply, deeply within the cells of my being? So you grab your tools, you grab your helmet, your tool belt, and you start tunneling. Tunneling through 10,000 years of debris. You find mistruths, flat lies, manipulations, control methods, complications. Appalled, but in wonder, you keep digging. And there, within, deep within this tunnel, you find the inner seed, this womb, a cave, a cavern, holding an ancient, beautiful, powerful, terrifying, and unstoppable force. Without thinking, you redirect the streams of your subconscious, those nourishing waters turned stagnant in the cesspools of controlled lakes, dammed up, dammed in by external, sometimes oppressive forces. You've accepted them without question, these inherited beliefs received with the compliance of a parent-pleasing child. The redirected waters begin to flood this cave. Pouring over, you ask yourself, what, what have I allowed within my own body? How did I not see this? You reach for a chalice and hand this timeless being a drink. They are neither feminine nor masculine. They are neither god nor goddess. They are primordial, older than the sun. They are eternal, this god force within you. So you're so thirsty for a drink, parched, deprived of light, of nourishment, of energy. And once you feed it, once you hold it in your arms and nurture it, What tremendous and creative and beautiful chaos will it produce? Should you choose to feed this force or seal the wall back up, it's up to you. The new moon in Cancer is this evening, my friends. New moons are about re-engagement, and this time with magic in Cancer season, manifestation, Anything is possible. Anything is possible in these realms. I feel like, I mean, cancer represents this 
this kind of God force within all of us, right? It's the season of fecund, fecundity, the fertility of growth, of things bursting with energy and life. And we can pick berries and eat them from the earth in the Northern Hemisphere. I don't know who's listening in the South, but I have to say we all have belly buttons and it's all about the belly button. A great wise energy once told me. Look at your belly button. You know, when you touch it, doesn't it feel weird? <laughs> doesn't it feel strange to reach inside? And it kind of sparks this point in the root chakra. Have you noticed that? When you touch your belly button, it sort of sparks something deep in the perineum, deep in the wells of your own creative portions, right? Your biological point, your humanity there in your crotch, <laughs> in your groin, this place where blood flows and nerves and beauty and pleasure and poop and pee, <laughs> all of these things. Um, I feel like the universe has a sense of humor when they designed us that like all the feel goods for for some people, I, I you know, I speak for my own pleasure body, so uh grain of salt, if you will, but I I think there's some humor in that, um how we're designed. <laughs> so the the sun or yeah, the sun and moon are conjunct in cancer, and so this is that reset button, the void, the darkness, this re-engagement with our own personal magic and our evolution. Um you know, I have to say that cancer season has been a time of a lot of feelings over here. I think that the frenetic energy of the Gemini retrograde seasons and the Saturn and Uranus square that hit us up in mid-June and then we pour into the solstice and the eclipse and all of this, you know, all this energy this last month. It's been a lot, let me tell you. And um I just want to follow up. I think last time I shared that I was in a depressive state and I took took matters into my own hands um, on a lot of levels. I had to do some really deep soul searching and to kind of engage with my own stigmas around taking medication um, I was put on medication at a very young age, about 12 years old. Uh, I don't even know if they prescribe Paxil anymore. But um, holler if you're out there and you were put on Paxil as a teen kid. Um, I mean, I think that this awakening, this shudder happened to me around 12 years old where I just saw the universe in a different way and it freaked me the fuck out. The world freaked me out. I was no longer a child. I was not an adult. All of a sudden I'm bleeding and, and my body is changing and people are attending to me differently. A mouthful of braces and headgear and it was awkward, an awkward moment when you're not a kid anymore, but you're not a woman, but everybody treats you differently. They treat you and look at you differently and it was disturbing. So, um, yeah, I told the doctor and they, you know, went to a couple weird therapists and they gave me picture books about depression and that it was this monster and this external thing. Uh, depression doesn't feel like an external thing. It feels, 
very fucking real when you're in those dark places or if you just cannot shake this exhaustion, this tremendous instability and self-deprecation of not being enough. And I'm someone who really believes those ideals and yet have not been able to embrace them completely. And I had to review and go back and think about all I've been through. I'm coming up on 11 years sober, August 1st. That's a big deal, right? Um, I have worked very hard on my meditation practice, my personal movement practice in the form of yoga and walking and breathing and being outside and trying to engage with my body in a way that I never knew how to as a kid. I was like walking, floating eyeballs for most of my life. So I had to think about all that stuff and I had to think about, I've taken all the omega-3s in high doses for years. I take magnesium, I take vitamin D3, I take L5-HTP, L5-hydroxytryptophan, which is a precursor to serotonin. I take adrenal supplements every single day, and I would highly recommend them to anybody living in the 21st century, just saying. Um, and I take B-complexes, and, and I eat great, and take good care of myself, and I have sugar when I want it, damn it, and uh, you know, I have good relationships. I have a really healthy relationship. So grateful for all of the connections I have, you know, and my accountability team, you, my listener, my audience that helps me to perpetually create and dump out all of these thoughts out of my brain and try to be and try to exist with all of the fullness and all of the energy. Um, I just, I hit a wall. I hit a wall and I, it's been affecting everything, everything in my life, my ability to get up and move through the days. And I was like, this has been going on for years and years and years. And, you know, my, my sister, I love her so much. She was like, you know, I mean, you, you might just need some serotonin kid, like, but, but you're an artist and nobody wants to listen to somebody who's well adjusted. They love crazy. You know, that's part of our culture, right? So I've kind of stayed in my crazy and, uh, hated myself for not getting a book written and, and, uh, the self-loathing of a day and avoiding tasks by doing dishes. You know, I mean, there's so many things to being a person, uh, and I mean, I, I just know that I am capable of a lot and I don't need to do anything, but I want to, do you know what I'm saying? You follow that? And a, a numerology reading with Andrea Gorsh of our sponsor, K Apothecary, um, apothecary, apothecary, potato, potato. Okay. I'll get it right one of these days. But Kay is in Mount Vernon, Iowa, and um, has been sponsoring the podcast for some months. I'm so glad that I met Andrea. We just had a magical connection. You should definitely go back to the archives and listen to our conversation because that girl is fire. And I needed that kind of injection of optimism in my life at the time that we did the interview. And I definitely needed this numerology appointment when we had it. 
It was massive, spectacular, wondrous, splendiferous, all of the things. Um, and, you know, funny enough, we had a lot in common. Um, and I, you can match numerology to astrology, but it's kind of like, you know, if I try to match the seven ray makeup to my perceptual makeup, to my astrology makeup, to no, like, don't just don't just don't compare systems. This is not the Enneagram. Numerology is its own ancient resource and well of knowledge and amazingness. And I felt so seen and I, it really lifted me up in a lot of ways. Uh, I mean, she kind of nailed it. She's like, you're just like a pinball bouncing around and you have no focus. And, you know, you have all this energy and this executive force inside of you. And I, I know that like you're in a rough spot. And funny enough, the reason that I wanted to contact Andrea in the first place is because I was thinking about changing my name. Talk about a crisis point in my life. Thank you, Pluto square Pluto moment in my existence. Um, also, Uranus is about to hit up my progressed sun here in the next month. So if I turn into a bolt of lightning, I want to tell you that I love you. And I'm glad that we have this conversation. <laughs> yeah, really flying, like uh, really resonating with uh, electricity and lightning bolts uh, lately. So um, if you text me, you know that I, I send a lot of lightning bolts. Um, it's just who I am. I, I like it. I like energy. I like electricity. I like connection points as above, so below. So Andrew helped me out. Um, but it, I mean, it did lead to this moment of like, what the fuck am I going to do? I need to feel better. I need, I can't do this anymore. I'm feeling gaslit by society that like, it's a beautiful day. Try. You should be grateful. That's called spiritual bypassing and like the the whole good vibes, like toxic optimism is really problematic, especially if you were in a dark place. So I went to the doctor. I called and I said, I need to talk to my primary care physician who listens and I am greatly strengthened by. Thank you, Dr. Kristen Maglioko here in Milwaukee. You're amazing. Um, so I made an appointment. I got in there on uh, Tuesday when I got back from a long trip to Asheville. Uh, long story short, my partner's niece uh, transitioned after a long battle with cancer. She was eight years old. Um, that's all I'm going to say about that. It was really sad. And she's not suffering anymore. So anyway, so I I, uh, went to the doctor and the nurse gaslit me. She told me that I was just tired. And I told on that bitch. Just going to say that. I told on her to the doctor and I said, I can handle that. I can take I can take that. But you know what? Somebody else may not be able to receive that. I came in here looking for help. Think about if somebody else was in a desperate position and someone just patted them on the head and said, you're just tired. You need, you need more exercise. You need to take a B complex. Well, bitch, I do all of that stuff. I do all of those things and I can't go on like this anymore. So I am on day three of taking Wellbutrin. 
Um, it's been a good drug for a family member who I share a lot of DNA with. Uh, so feeling like that was a good choice. Start with low dose. Um, no side effects so far. Inshallah. <laughs> and we'll see how this journey takes me and I will keep you updated on this experience. But yes, I am still taking all of my uh, supplements. I am a supplement junkie. Uh, if I could make money telling you about all the supplements that I take, I would do that. <laughs> uh, just because I've, I've taken them for a long time and have really reaped the benefits of uh, adjusting my system through food medicine. I don't take aspirin, okay? I don't take ibuprofen at all. So for me to take a pharmaceutical was kind of a revelation, I think. And I had a moment where I was like, am I, am I going to still be me once I take this chemical, you know, like, cause we are what we eat. Right. So there's, there's just like a lot of thoughts going through my head. I mean, being sober for as long as I am, like just the slightest bit of alcohol or the slightest bit of THC in my CBD can send me spinning into a vortex. Um, so it's, you know, it's a cautious, uh, mindful approach. You know, this is something that, that I have like a care team for. And if you're going through any of this or if you're relating with any of my story, I mean, I'm totally putting myself out there. Um, I, I hope that you have a care team. I hope that you have accountability people that you can talk to. Uh, a journal is a great companion in sorting out these experiences. The trouble with me is that I'm a goldfish. <laughs> I wake up every day and I'm like, plastic castle. Woohoo. You know, um, I wish I was that happy. Hopefully, hopefully the Wellbutrin will get me to that point of the like, woohoo, plastic castle. Um, nod to Ani DeFranco if you haven't heard that song. Uh, but the, the goldfish memory it's real, you know, not having a, a sense of continuity. I don't know if that's a fire air experience of my own, uh, lack of ground in my chart, lack of earth, too much water. I don't know. I'm just swimming. <laughs> so I'll keep swimming. And I hope that you're swimming through cancer season two. Um, speaking of cancers, I have a lot of good cancer friends in my life. And I am so deeply appreciative to Ethan Nickturn, Buddhist teacher, meditation teacher, author, brilliant, brilliant human being who um, gave me some of their time, gave me some of his time, which I'm so deeply appreciative of. Did I say that enough times? Thank you, Ethan, for coming on to my podcast. Like you are, you are amazing. Um, Ethan and I crossed paths at the New York Shambhala Center in Chelsea. I think it was 23rd and 6th Avenue, if my brain serves me right. Uh, back in 2010. Um, pretty pretty small-knit community there. Um, but T uh, Ethan, when, when still involved with the Shambhala uh, tradition of uh, Tibetan Buddhism... Uh, was a Shastri, which was one of the kind of like, you know, like teacher with a pin, like I got a badge kind of thing. <laughs> 
And I was really fortunate to take some classes. I audited uh, one of the basic meditation levels uh, with him in New York and up at Karma Choling, I was able to take a, a fearlessness class, which is basically like intro to shunyata or emptiness practice. You know, and, and some of my clients will hear me say stuff that I learned from that class with Ethan all those years ago about the bandits of hope and fear. You know, so Ethan and I got to connect through this tradition, through Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche's tradition. Uh, we talk some about the, the Shambhala experience um, because it's deeply formative. And I think for Ethan, having grown up in that tradition, um, Ethan's father is David Nickturn. Um, and if you're a fan of Midnight Gospel, I'm constantly quoting that show because I'm such a nerd for it. Uh, uh, David Nickturn is in one of the episodes as like the meditation master uh, that Clancy goes in and chats to once the computer gets really sick of him. So I think that's one of like the middle episodes, but you should go check that out. But legit, David Nickturn is... Uh, I think there's a, like a music background, if I if my memory serves me correctly, but um, has been teaching about meditation and mindfulness for their entire adult career. And Ethan, um, having grown up with meditation as kind of a, I don't know, like a, a choice, but also a language, you know, same same with me, like growing up with astrology, I was like, I'm not ready to speak that yet. And then it, you know, eventually came around and whapped me in the face. And so that's what I'm doing now. But um, Ethan is a triple cancer. So sun, moon and rising all in the 12th house. Sorry to tell on you, Ethan, but I think we get into that in the interview. Um, such a sensitive, humorous, amazing teacher. And his books, his books are really powerful. So I just want to mention um, a couple of titles and I'll, I'll put those up in the, the episode notes, but I'm going to do a little uh, sample from The Road Home, A Contemporary Exploration of the Buddhist Path by Ethan Nickturn, forward by Sharon Salzberg. Um, there's a more recent book on the Dharma of the Princess Bride, which is epic. I, I keep feel, I feel like I'm using a lot of the same terms, like boring terms that are, that just mean big things. Like I am so excited that I got to talk to Ethan for the podcast. Um, that is an exploration on relationships and how uh, Buddhism and meditation sort of informs a lot of this contemporary gem of a film, right? That a lot of us grew up on. Um, and if you haven't seen The Princess Bride, please just take the 90 minutes or whatever and and get in. It's it's a good ride. Uh, Ethan also wrote, uh, Your Emoticons Won't Save You. Cute title. And uh, One City, which is a book about interdependence. And this concept of interdependence is, is a big piece of the spiritual tradition that I adhere to, but it's not just about spirituality, it's about existence, that we are all linked in and connected. Um, I mean, I remember as a kid thinking, wow, you know, this is the same water that the dinosaurs drank. You know, what eight-year-old thinks of that? Of course I did, but... Um, you know, the, the water that falls on a mountain trickles down and, you know, helps to saturate a coffee plant. And that coffee plant is picked 
and then it is transported to another place where it is roasted and moves from one hand to the next, equipment and minerals and paper and all of the things it takes for it to get, you know, propelled across the planet from Central America or Africa or whatever your preference is on your uh, coffee bean uh, origins. For my coffee snobs out there, I see you. I love you. It's like one of one of my greatest loves of my life is coffee. Uh, anyway, so coffee lands in your <laughs> your kitchen, but think about all the steps that it took to get there. I think that we forget that on a basic daily moments, these moments that we we can really see if we just look at your desk, at your notebook, at anything, your your clothing, your belongings, everything is connected to one another. The food that you consume is connected. This interdependence, this union, this oneness. So I love that <laughs> that we got to talk about the idea of home, which is so richly connected to cancer. Uh, the fourth house in astrology is ruled by cancer. We think of cancer as the mother or the nurturer. Um, I think that you can move beyond gender terminology and think more of your root system or the ancestral lineage. Think about your belly button that we've all walked through a vagina or uh, out of a, another person's body if you're a C-section baby or if you've had a C-section. You know, there's 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 this inherent belly buttonness that connects us looping into infinity um and this idea of home you know it's not necessarily the womb it's not necessarily the spirit world is it your body is it your mind uh so i had a hard time figuring out like where to read from in this book because it's such a beautiful piece of literature and Ethan refers to the commuter. A commuter is you. It's me. It's any lost, bumping around, wandering soul living here in this ephemeral world. <laughs> Looking for something. Moving from place to place. Searching for whatever it is. If it's comfort. If it's pleasure. So when the commuter is born, he cries from the depths of his being, not knowing where or who he is. Breath is both a gift and a burden. As a baby, the commuter clamors for safety in a world in which he is utterly defenseless. His parents try to protect him as best they can, but they too struggle to deal with the anxiety, regrets, and uncertainty created by their own commutes through life. They don't dare tell him the whole truth about their own struggles, afraid that they might poison his chance at happiness. I'm going to stop there because I could just keep keep on going with this. But I love this this analogy. Is that the right term? Ethan, you can you can correct me later. Um that we're commuting towards happiness, which seems to be this like always right out of our grip, out of our grasp, out of our hands. So these these practices of mindfulness and meditation to find home at the center of your consciousness, to find home wherever you are in whatever environment that you're in. 
you know, we look for familiar things, but if we turn inside of ourselves and find familiarity and friendship with our own minds, with our own consciousness, that's comfort. That's, that's stability. So without further ado, I'm going to invite Ethan Nickturn onto the pad to the podcast. <laughs> Stay inspired. All right. Here we go. It's, it's really it's really awesome to be here with you. So I've invited you on because for a lot of reasons, I have utmost respect for your writing and your teaching and all of your gifts, but also you are a triple cancer. So I thought that would be a perfect resonance for this season. Yep. Six, six, uh, six uh, claw crabs coming at you. Crab claws. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> You know, I, li- I like the symbol of the turtle uh, for cancer as well. This idea of, like, oh. I-, I mean, how, how, when did you know what a cancer was and how have you ever resonated with that energy? Yeah, I, I, so first of all, having a turtle, cause like, I remember being into Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles when they were, it was like an underground comic. So that's, that's, I didn't even realize that you could do that as a cancer that you could like, I, I like the crab, but I like the turtle too. That's amazing. My mother was really into astrology. She had an astrology, like a long astrology reading that she had recorded when I was a baby. As a kid, I was never super into it. Um, uh, at, you know, I, I, it did, it didn't feel like pseudoscience, but it felt like, you know, I, I didn't know I had just way too superficial a glean to really know anything about it. And, and it felt like a lot of people who were talking about it had a pretty superficial understanding too. And um, it was really later, like getting readings from my friend Lawrence Greco, who's an astrologer and Zen teacher, and my friend Juliana McCarthy, and you, like getting really insightful readings and and reading a few books about it. That um, you know, it became uh, more and more useful. And uh, it it really seems when I listen to my friends who are astrologers, you know, these times, like the last three or four years seem to really, uh, astrologers seem to have a lot of insights into not exactly what's going to happen, but, um, just kind of the general movements in our crazy world. So for me, it's definitely been more of an adult understanding, but when I was a kid, I would know that I was a triple cancer. And when I told that to anybody, uh, who was, uh, uh, a grown up who was really into astrology, they would like look at me with like ridiculous amounts of sympathy as in like, that must be so hard. <laughs> Has it been hard, Ethan? I, I mean, I have nothing to compare it to. So, <laughs> well, my, cor- correct me if I'm wrong, that, um, and you would be the one to correct me, but like, so I think when you're double or triple something, right, uh, in your, your, um, sun rising and, and moon, I think the assumption is that that means you're, there's a lot of intensity around that energy, but couldn't it also be interpreted that you're just very consistent in the way you kind of like your your inner self, the way you show up externally, and like if the moon is kind of where you hide out or move away um, inwardly, like wouldn't a, being a triple something just mean that your your manifestations have a lot of consistency? I like the way that you frame that. I think that there is a lot of truth to that, that like you're, you're not playing off other parts of your identity, so to speak, and like your luminaries. So it, it is sort of a flashlight, 
you know, like everything's moving together and working together, which makes a lot of sense for your makeup. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, can you just remind me like what, what are like, if there were four or five like key components to being a, a cancer person, like what, what would you say are the like top bullet list aspects? I think the feeling aspect is probably the first thing that comes to mind and that that is the main perceptual understanding of the world is through feeling. And sometimes it's hard to like label the feelings as thoughts um, because you're registering it in a different way. But since that's the only way that you know how to register it, how are you supposed to compare to anyone else? Mm -hmm. Like it's only been your feeling and the way that you perceive Intuition, I think, is the other word that I would use. Mm -hmm. uh, adaptability, uh, strength, because cancer is a cardinal energy. It's what gets things started. Uh, it's the ultimate nurturer. And I was, I was just reading a quote out of one of my favorite astrology books. It's called Astrology Illumined. And the quote that really stuck out, I think, for our conversation is that the highest purpose of cancer is to create sacred space for mm. the to the development of fullness within a human being. And I, I thought of that specifically for you because of what you do as a teacher and how you hold space for other people to develop. Um, amphibian quality of being right. able to go in the shell and out of the shell and in the water and on the land. And that idea that cancer is so connected to the idea of home. And mm. you've written a book called The Road Home, which I'd love to hear, like you talk about the, the idea of home for you and maybe what brought you, led you to writing this amazing book about being a commuter in a world that's always changing. Yeah. So that's, that's another thing I heard when I got more into <clears throat> astrology about cancers that, that never actually has applied to me, uh, at least not sort of in the stereotypical understanding, which is that cancers are very home oriented and can even be like home bodies. Um, mm -hmm. And I've always liked to travel a lot, you know, like if even when I'm like at home, even when I'm doing like a writer's retreat at home, if I don't take like one or two long walks away from home in that day, like it just, it just feels too, um, too much stasis, you know? So, um, but the metaphor of home, you know, I think was really important to me and, you know, trying to think about like the roots of that, you know, obviously the other approach to talking about this is like the psychodynamic, you know, sort of early formative relationship. So, you know, both, both of my parents, as you know, were, were Buddhists and were students of Chogim Trungpa Rinpoche, um, who really, you know, was one of the main progenitors in bringing Buddhism to the, to the West and especially was probably the main progenitor bringing Tibetan Buddhism um, and Tantric Buddhism to the West. And so they were students of his before um, I was born. So I had a kind of, my, my parents introduced me to Buddhism and it was all around me. But, you know, I think being an only child and they went through a very difficult divorce when I was nine, 10 year, years old. And so, yeah, I think not having, you know, like a, a childhood that was like a lot spent in commute, you know, like to school and to the different, I mean, I grew up in New York city, but going around the different parts of New York city back and forth between my parents' home, you know, um, definitely like sort of that metaphor of how do we actually, you know, how do we find home during the commute? I think, um, became a, 
a metaphor. And also, you know, the, the metaphors I use when I teach, they, they really come from teaching. So, you know, I will often throw out ideas when I'm working with people individually or when I'm giving, you know, a group talk or leading a retreat or something like that. And you kind of uh, know what lands, you know, and, and this, this metaphor of home and uh, in that case, making one's own mind or heart mind or one's own awareness kind of uh, into a stable and loving and nurturing home uh, really landed with people and the sort of, I don't want to say opposite, but the uh, companion metaphor of like uh, commute, you know, the, um, the, the word samsara um, uh, has this sense of uh, wandering around lost or yeah. wandering around in circles. That's kind of a metaphorical translation. And then um, the, the Tibetan word for um, uh, sentient being, meaning a confused sentient being, a non-awakened sentient being, is drowa, which, which translates most literally as like goer or always on the go, like never settled, you know, never, never, never landing somewhere. Um, and, and so that, um, yeah, that, that quality of like, I think my own formative experience of what is home, where is home? Um, and, uh, and, you know, through a lot of early relationships kind of, you know, wondering, you know, is this home, uh, et cetera. And, and then sort you know, and then also working with it, with other people and this, this notion of being a commuter and looking for home, you know, and life when we're not paying attention to it, feeling like we're always commuting to the next thing, you know, and we think the next thing is going to be home, but then we're just in transit to the next thing and the next phase of life and the next goal that really landed with a lot of people. So I, I, I don't, I, I've never like, uh, tested how many people, uh, I work with our certain particular sign. I don't know if certain uh -huh. signs are more drawn to meditation or Buddhism than others. That would be a really interesting sort of like, uh, uh, you know, uh, poll to, yeah. to take. <laughs> um, but uh, that, that sense of commuter looking for home as this kind of emotive, like kind of sad and beautiful metaphor for, our state being kind of lost and confused really, really landed. Um, uh, and, you know, I made the whole introduction of my book around that and mm -hmm. people will tell me a lot of times that that's the part of the book they really uh, appreciate most, which is good as a writer to have the first part of the book be something that people want to read because then they might keep reading. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I think that's, that's kind of where, where it's coming from, but I've always had this, interesting relationship to home because I've never been particularly a homebody. You know, I've actually always been comfortable kind of moving around. And maybe that that is because of that formative experience of being a child of divorce. Right. Well, I think the idea of a physical home is pretty mundane if you think about it. Hmm. You know, if you're rooted in your own body, your body can be your home. And in, in your situation, it's like you're asking people to settle into their own minds, to make friends with their own minds so that you can be comfortable wherever you are. I just, I think it's funny that cancer is so associated with emotional security and you teach essentially about the untruths of security mm. sold to us by culture. And I mean, I, I remember taking fearlessness with you 
that class and it was it was like a game changer learning about hopes and fears and how they're essentially the same thing and that we're always clinging to security when in fact there is no ground there is no place to land so I think, again, I think that's really interesting with the cancer dynamic of needing emotional security, some kind of disruption or an awareness moment that they needed to start working with their mind in a new way. Whereas you've been kind of born into the tradition. I'd, I'd love to hear about how you arrived at meditation and then how you stepped into this role as a teacher in adulthood. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, I mean... Yeah, it, it is always, I don't think it always has to be a traumatic experience, but there is always kind of a disruption of like some, some sense of identity or some uh, security or some, you know, relationship or some life situation kind of falling apart. You know, uh, I think Pema Chodron's uh, most popular book is When Things Fall Apart. You know, I think that's like one of the biggest um, Buddhist gateway drugs that exist is, you know, somebody goes through a really difficult situation and you give them specifically that book and they're like, oh yeah, things just fell apart. I'm, I'm curious, like, because most people don't come to meditation unless they've been through some like real shit mm -hmm. in my, in my experience. Like I don't meet happy people who are like, oh, I've been meditating since childhood. It's just like the way that I move through the world. Usually it's people who've been through a lot of trauma or, you know, it, it was a little bit of that for me. I mean, on the one hand, it's just a way to work with your internal experience, you know, and, and that's, I mean, that's part of my lament, you know, being a very progressively educated person. It's, it's obviously changed a lot since the eighties and nineties. And, you know, my high school now has a whole mindfulness program. Um, yeah. but, um, you know, you're not really taught, you know, to work with your own mind, you know, historically, I mean, even most of Western psychology, you know, the actual theoretical training that a person goes through is working with an abstracted mind or working with other people's minds, you know? So that notion of actual deep tools and techniques for self-reflection, I do think they're useful to anyone, but sort of having this paradigm of like, you know, something like these, these Buddhist teachings on, you know, emptiness or, you know, being beyond hope and fear or, um, you know, there is no solid self, you know, um, impermanence. You know, th these are things that really kind of strike us when some something that we're holding on to um, changes or transforms or falls away. And that de that definitely happened for me. I mean, I was, um, you know, I actually did my first uh, Eric Spiegel taught, uh, God bless him, uh, <laughs> at, at uh, what was then called um, Dharma Datu, which later became the Shambhala Center, uh, taught a class that was just for kids. Um, and, you know, I remember it being kind of boring, um, but there was something about just working with your breath and working with your awareness and noticing thoughts arising that was really kind of formative and useful. And that was like, that was like right when my parents were splitting up or maybe the year after I was like 10, 11 years old. And then, you know, in high school, I was really interested in like quite a lot of different things. And I started reading Buddhist books and, you know, Chogyam Trungpa, Thich Nhat Hanh, Suzuki Roshi, um, all Asian men at that point. And, you know, what I liked about all the, the philosophy, the, the intellectual side of it is there was a lot of room to uh, 
contemplate it and also a lot of room given to argue with it. You know, it, it gave you a lot to play with. Um, and not a lot of philosophies had that sense of like, you can disagree with this, you can, you know, lash out against it. And I, I started meditating, uh, you know, towards the end of high school regularly, just because I found it helpful. But to be honest, like what, what happened to me is I went to college. Um, I had had my first uh, girlfriend, my freshman year of college, we met like a week after school started. She lived down the hall from me. It was the first sort of like, oh my God, I'm in love moments ever. Mm -hmm. And uh, we spent all of freshman year together. Um, basically, I forgot to make any friends uh, at college <laughs> other than my roommate, you know, <laughs> that was like the, the people I hung out with were like my roommate. Um, thank you for being my friend, John Mello. And, um, and Julie, my, my girlfriend who lived down the hall. And, uh, then, you know, she broke up with me, uh, the, the, which is good. I mean, cause that has to happen. And also I don't think I knew how to be a boyfriend, you know? Uh, but the, the summer after freshman year and I was crushed and my summer job was working at tricycle magazine as an intern, um, in New York. And I was completely crushed and heartbroken and that's when I decided I was a Buddhist and then, you know, got really, really, really into it. And, um, you know, I've, I've, since that point, I've always been, I've always had a mind that's very comparative. Like I'm really into writing is my main creative expression, but I'm really into visual art. I'm really into films. I've always been really into politics and political theory. You know, I was so interested in college and like the relationship between Buddhism and Marxism and like Dharma art and, you know, um, and so my mind always wanted to cross pollinate things. And that, that did seem like where the best discussions were. And, you know, in college, I would come home uh, to my parents' center, then the Shambhala center, and I would take classes. Uh, and, you know, I'd be like 18, 19, 20 years old, and I'd be the youngest person in the class then by like 20 years, at least, yep. you know. Yep. And um, so I was like, you know, this isn't the place I'm going to talk about, like a tribe called Quest, you know, and <laughs> and but I knew so many depressed and, you know, um, people in college. And it really helped me kind of get to know myself a lot better, both not just meditation, but studying Buddhism, too, you know, and, um, you know, I was trying to figure out what to do right after college. And I went to live at Karma Choling for uh, six or seven months uh, and. You know, I remember right after the, that, like 9-11 happened, I think like three days after I moved back to New York City, and I just wanted to do something meaningful. So I, I got on a track of like really being serious about Buddhist studies and, you know, slowly, you know, started teaching classes and, you know, did teacher training first and it kind of evolved from there. So my first in the early 2000s, my first inspiration was there's not enough young people into this. And also to take a really kind of like intersectional or uh, cross-pollinating approach, intersectional in sort of, in that sense, like different fields of information. Um, uh, but, you know, and then more recently, it's been really wonderful the last decade or so to watch, a, you know, a true intersectional kind of more activist, um, you know, um, more in touch with, you know, questioning racism and white supremacy and patriarchy um, and, you know, trying to support that. Um, and, 
you know, all of a sudden then you realize you've been teaching for 20 years and you're actually like one of the older teachers, you know, even though you still feel like a kid and, um, you know, and it's sometimes have been really, you know, super difficult, like the um, sexual abuse and sexual assault scandals in the Shambhala community that made that entire organization completely implode. And, you know, so it's been a rough uh, on many, many fronts. It's been a, a rough last three or four or five years, really since the Trump era began. But, um, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, I think the interesting thing is all that's happening when mindfulness and Buddhism and all of these, I think, I think similar with astrology, like I, I think interest in all of these kind of alternative modes of understanding ourselves and understanding the world have really skyrocketed the last um, number of years. Would you say that that's true? Yeah. I, I mean, I think my thoughts on, uh, I, I can't remember who wrote it, but it was the, the joy of living. Mm-hmm. And there was this, this intersection between physics and meditation that Buddhist practitioners, you know, what is this 2,500 years of studying the mind that it's finally being supported by science, you know, that we have the technology and the data that understand those things. And I think it's the same thing with astrology that we're starting to understand there's a correlation between nature, metaphysics and quantum physics. So I, I, I feel like it is coming all around, but that means that a purging and a healing needs to happen within those communities. So mm. it's, it's good of you to mention the, the this sexual like wrongdoings and I I know a lot of women um, in Buddhist traditions are often a little annoyed that it's very like white dominant and mostly white males that are in charge of a lot of these organizations. Um, do you as a white body person have any thoughts about that? Like being male and Oh, I have I have so many thoughts. Um, do you want me to mansplain my thoughts to you? <laughs> you have my consent. I guess I guess my own thoughts are within are within the terrain of my expertise, right? So it wouldn't be it wouldn't technically be mansplaining if I'm just talking about my own experience. Um, yeah, it's I mean it's th- there's so many conversations here, you know, in in any of these kind of alternative health and wellness. Uh, communities, but especially in the mindfulness and and Buddhist community. Um, I mean, I think if you look at the origins of uh, practice-based, you know, philosophical, psychological-based, meditative-based Buddhist traditions in the West, you know, it's mostly you have a a few very prominent um, Asian male teachers um, in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, who came and, um, you know, taught, you know, overwhelmingly white um, uh, students uh, who were, you know, of the of the boomer generation. Uh, you know, maybe one exception of that is in the in the insight tradition, you have a small group of uh, young white teachers who in the, you know, 60s and 70s, like the Sharon Salzberg's, Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein, who went to Burma and India and received teachings and then brought them back and, and you know, became like primary spreaders of the insight tradition. Um, and, you know, it's it's interesting, like, why did that um, catch on so much among among a white audience? You know, it's I mean, it's it's interesting because it's also a lot of those teachers to a certain degree, they, they weren't. Um, 
at least outwardly speaking, I don't want to speak for their private work, because um, I think there's a lot of different examples, but outwardly speaking, they weren't necessarily advocating a Buddhism that was, you know, engaged in also social justice work, you know, or political work, you know, which is, I think, I think that's one part of the problem is, or one part of the issue, I shouldn't say problem, is, you know, how do you translate uh, teachings that, spiritual teachings that come from uh, ancient societies that were not democracies, political democracies, into a political democracy, you know? And, and so I think there, and, uh, and also how do you translate them into a society um, where, uh, you know, white supremacy and patriarchy have dominated. I think to a certain degree, you would actually say that the patriarchy dominated in, in uh, the Eastern societies where all this stuff came from as well. Um, you know, how do you translate into a society where there's this really strong rift between secular knowledge and religious knowledge, which isn't, or spiritual knowledge, which isn't uh, really where these teachings came from. That rift doesn't really exist at all. Um, and so there's a lot of like sort of things that are new. And the other element is, you know, this is, we live in a, um, you know, I, I think white, uh, especially white American society is one of the most individualistic, uh, you know, cultural societies that's, that's ever existed. Like the, the notion of the individual speaking their truth and doing whatever they want to do. And, you know, I think, I think we see this going to like severe delusional extremes with, you know, some of the stuff happening now with QAnon and how much, you know, inroads that has made into some of these uh, white, you know, wellness and alternative yoga, Dharma communities, etc. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's, it's interesting, because when you put all those things together, and, and the teachings are not, you know, interrogating the, the social systems, uh, that they're either coming from or being translated into, the, the whole thing is going to be, you're, you're basically accepting the hidden context of what you're being um, given, you know? So everything always has a social context, but when you claim that the only context of a body of teachings is the individual, basically all you're saying there is I'm taking as given whatever the um, hidden social context is and I'm, I'm revalidating it without saying so. You know, so that was a big learning experience for me the last five, five years to actually see the link between individualism and white supremacy, you know, to actually see because an individual is basically saying, I need to be an individual in a white supremacist society, that that's basically saying, I agree with white supremacy. I mean, we wouldn't say that, you wouldn't actually say, most of us wouldn't say, I agree with white supremacy. You wouldn't like say that aloud, but Ex not interrogating the social context of individual spiritual teachings, you know, uh, leads there. And so I'm, I'm very thankful for, you know, people who are not, um, you know, mansplaining uh, cisgender straight white males like myself, who have really risen to prominence in, in uh, Dharma communities, like, you know, authors of Radical Dharma, you know, like Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, Lama mm -hmm. Rod Owens, there's, there's all these wonderful, the too many to mention, all these really wonderful uh, teachers who are, you know, really saying that these teachings cannot separate the individual from the from the social context. And, you know, that's that's tricky because we do come looking for these teachings because we need 
individual help, you know, and I think we need to keep honoring that people need to be seen as individuals and held and healed as individuals, but that can't happen without kind of an understanding of the social context of, of these teachings. And the, the thing that sort of so was so confusing to me about there being any um, pushback in Buddhist communities about that is when you get into the Mahayana and Tantric and, you know, more enlightened society aspect of the, of the Buddhist teachings, it's, it's all about interdependence and social context. It's, it's not meant to be an individualistic system. It is meant to be a system that honors the individual experience within a social system, but it's not meant to reduce interdependence to just, you know, me and my truth and it, which is completely separate from the world I inhabit or what's happening to other people. So that, that was a long answer to a short question. No, I, I appreciate it. White supremacy is the water that we're swimming in. So, um, and that, that idea of individualism, I mean, to use the, the water metaphor again, is that like we're all indiv individual drops within this greater ocean, but you can't separate the two of them. And that was my understanding with, with Sangha. The idea of being with other confused individuals is that I knew I wasn't alone. And that felt like home to me Yeah, to find community because trying to do things on my own has never worked. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I agree with that. That's true for me too. <laughs> uh, that, like that isolation. Um, oh, I have so many thoughts about what you've just shared just because it's really powerful in context of spirituality because Tibetan Vajrayana Buddhism it's the inner or esoteric piece of Buddhism as a whole, uh, just like Gnostic Christianity or some of the, you know, the Vedic teachings of the inner inner piece, which is that, um, that we're all one, but we have a hard time understanding and grasping concepts like emptiness. Uh, most of the biggest books in Buddhism are about emptiness because it's so simple that we cannot understand it. Right, right. And it's, it, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, that, well, that's the interdependence piece, I think. And, and you've written a whole book on that. The One City book was, a, a, was a, an allegory, in a sense, to explain interdependence to people. Yeah, yeah. So that was, that was my first book. And, you know, I think the way my thinking has evolved, I mean, I've always tried, even though we didn't really have the, or I didn't have the language in 2005 when I was working on that book it came out in 2007 um, you know I've tried to be an ally you know and I was you know progressively and multiculturally educated as a as a you know uh, my my elementary and high school education but um, you know the, the language I was trying to use was this kind of Buddhist metaphor of interdependence and how everything is uh, connected um, and you know, from that standpoint, individualism or what, what I called uh, being a spiritual libertarian, you know, as Buddhism came to the West, it, it, it was first presented to a overwhelmingly white audience. It was still presented. I think you could make an argument um, that it was presented to a much broader audience uh, are actually given to a much broader swath and the full array of the, the teachings are given to a much broader swath of the lay community here than they, than they had been um, where they came from. And that is some kind of uh, 
a positive evolution, even if it's an incomplete one, if it strips out um, the intersectional component. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you say lay, just for people who don't know that term, you mean um, non-monastics or householders? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah. So like in the, in a lot of Buddhist communities in, in the ancient world, the monastics were really the serious practitioners. And in a lot of cases, like in Tibet, they were the only ones who even practiced meditation, you know, or, or studied the deep philosophical teachings on topics like emptiness, you know, or the nature of mind, etc. And the job of the, the householder community was mostly to support, you know, financially, the, the monastic practitioners who were kind of the, the serious practitioners. So um, th there are some, you know, um, interesting uh, anecdotes that are contradictions to that. But, but, you know, it's, it's very new that anybody can meditate, you know, in the Buddhist world, anybody can learn mm -hmm. uh, meditation in, in a lot of aspect in a lot of places in the Buddhist world. And so the idea that this is more now uh, becoming more a tradition about awakening in the world or using these teachings to aid uh, a compassionate life in the world is a really cool new evolution, you know, is, is sort of set against this obvious truth of um, interdependence, you know, and I think the evolution for me the last number of years is it's not just some philosophical or we would say in Buddhism, some like view misunderstanding. It's like the way that actually manifests in our world is that individualism is always uh, a position within the, the white supremacist ocean that we've swam in, you know, for hundreds of years. And so I didn't, you know, that kind of intersectional approach um, in one city is, is left out because I personally didn't have, you know, language for it. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to be able to link that up with like who has, you know, been able to receive and study all these teachings in the Western world and, and why, you know, at, at the same time, I just, you know, I do want to give a shout out that um, in many of these traditions in, in the Eastern world, that the, the real deep meditative, contemplative, philosophical and psychological teachings, which here, you know, are very widely available there were considered, you know, very specialized material for just a small monastic community. Mm -hmm. And to be a lay practitioner was really just to support the teachings, but you didn't necessarily have access to really studying and, and practicing the, the, the deep sp spiritual and psychological and philosophical materials. So even though um, of, of lay practitioners than, than it had been in the East. So you know, evolutions don't always like happen all at once, you know, and I think that's that's the other part of like the social justice warrior in all of us is we often point to the imperfections rather than like, well, hey, that actually is a big step that the the deep teachings of Buddhism in that case, um, you know, I think you can make similar claims about yoga. I mean, you've you've helped hundreds if not thousands at this point in your career to step into their seat to approach meditation as a way to transform and also to heal the world you know i think of projects like the interdependence project which you spearheaded in new york city in the late aughts that you were the director for for many years that 
the idea is to take take your own inner transformation and put that out in the world. So, you know, why, Ethan? Why should we meditate? Tell us why we should meditate. Yeah. I mean, there's so many answers to that question. Well, what, why you shouldn't meditate is because um, somebody's pressuring you to. Because I think whenever whenever a new health thing becomes very popular, then there's a like, I need to do that, you know? And now that meditation apps are like billion dollar industries, you know, like Headspace or Calm or things like this, I think there's like kind of a social pressure that like, I know I, it, and it's almost like people say it like, I know I should get my head clean, you know, like, like as if you were like, you know, it was like a tooth whitener for your brain or something like that. <laughs> um, and I think a lot of people think it, it is that, you know, I think it's really important that we all have, there's a lot of contemplative activities that we all do that kind of help us to get to know ourselves better. But, and, and all of them can be part of your practice and path. You know, I'm thinking of like writing or painting, you know, or, you know, any cooking, you know, any kind of activity that you put yourself in it and you kind of, through the practice, you, you learn more about who you are, but most of those activities require you to kind of bounce your mind off of some external activity. Mm -hmm. And there's something about working with your body and your mind directly as it is and working with the emotions, the thoughts, the perceptions that are already happening. That is, is a really, you know, beautiful act of kind of intimacy with kind of learning how your home base actually works. Um, for the reason that, you know, I, I think this is true, even after you meditate for a long time, it's still true. Um, most of us are just terrified of ourselves, you know, like we're just like and terrified of of our own mind, you know, and that's really, really sad when you think about it, like that, that this is this is your home for this lifetime is your body and your mind. And most of us just are scared to form a relationship with it alone, you know, and unfortunately technology is getting better and better at, you know, snapping up those moments where we could actually really be with ourselves and um, giving us a distraction, you know, and commodifying those distractions. Uh, and so I think it's, you know, Chogyam Trungpa said the purpose of meditation is to make friends with yourself. And um, I, I really like that definition. The, that idea of like getting to know yourself without a, uh, an intermediary activity, um, I think is really helpful, but it's also terrifying. So you have to find a way to access it uh, in a supportive environment with, you know, good community or friends or um, teachers who like actually you feel some kind of like genuine connection to and you don't feel like uh, I think the worst thing that happens is when we put a teacher on a pedestal, because all that does is is separates us from the possibility of getting to know ourselves, you know, and uh, I, 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 that's why I think people should meditate is because we're not good friends with ourselves and, and we could be better friends with ourselves. Well said. Trungpa talked a lot about aggression 
you know, which is, we know the three poisons and the three jewels, those of us that are familiar with Buddhism, but aggression and self-aggression specifically, I know was the reason why I stepped onto the cushion finally. And I remember getting so hot headed when I first started practicing, I would just, I would get up before the gong was rung. You know, I just like couldn't, couldn't take the heat in my head anymore. And I, and I started to really direct my aggression towards other students early on in my practice. And I'm so grateful that I had those awful experiences and a community to share those feelings with. And eventually they, they resolved themselves that the kinder that I was to my own mind, um, the, the less aggression I felt towards other people. Mm. And I mean, I feel like that's the greatest gift is uh, I really started to love myself, which I mm. didn't think was possible. Mm. How, how do you see that manifest with others, with, with students of yours, like that idea of aggression? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's aggression is a really interesting term in English and that was his kind of preferred aggression for, you know, his preferred term for what I think we could also just call like self-hatred, you know, or it man it often manifests as just an inability to tolerate yourself, you know, and, um, in kind of a naked state um, of just like, here I am with my, with my body and mind, you know, I, I think the um, there's a great story um, uh, by Sharon Salzberg, you know, one, one of my teachers and great meditation teacher about doing her first loving kindness retreat, you know, and when she was doing the retreat, love, loving kindness practice was provoking a lot of anger, you know, and she went to her teacher for an interview and said, you know, is something wrong? Like I'm doing loving kindness practice and I find myself having more anger. And the teacher just said something like, are you starting to see the truth about yourself? Which made her even angrier. Right. You know, but what he was trying to say is like, there's just a lot of anger in there. And that's what we're working with, you know, and. I think I, I think we also have to be honest, like that's the beautiful thing about mindfulness is you just kind of try to practice noticing what's actually happening rather than like what you think should be happening, you know, and we all have these preconceptions about what's supposed to happen when we meditate, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, people often say when they if they don't know me, they often say to me, you know, you, you seem like a really peaceful person and or you, I guess you're a really peaceful person because you're a meditation teacher. And I'm like, well, I'm a lot more peaceful than I used to be, but I'm also like, you know, if, if you want me to talk about like, uh, the filibuster, you'll hear me get pretty hot headed. You know, if you want me to like talk about like movies, you'll see, I have incredibly strong opinions, (laughs) which I'm fairly uncommitted to, you know, I mean, so there's, (laughs) (laughs) but there's like, a uh, you know, there's a realness to human emotion that I think we spend so much, I think we've all learned East, West, et cetera, like how not to acknowledge, you know, what we're feeling. And anger is such a easily invalidated emotion in our world for some weird reason, because it's such a valid feeling, you know, and, and I think when you aren't able to express anger as it arises, it usually is going to turn inward, you know, or go to resentments towards somebody who hurt us or, you know, which is, you know, it's always valid to be angry at people who hurt you, but it gets, it gets frozen 
And I think meditation has a, a kind of slow thawing aspect. So I think you actually experience the aggression first and, and then something softens eventually. It doesn't, it never goes away fully, I think anger or, you know, aggression, but, but I, what, what you're describing is going through some process of like actually seeing the aggressive thoughts and, and maybe especially the self-aggressive thoughts that were there. And then, uh, through the process, just, it kind of tenderizes a little bit and it, it transforms how we, how we feel towards others, you know, which doesn't mean you're not irritated with them. I mean, I'm, I'm irritated with people all the time, but it doesn't, it doesn't land. It doesn't freeze. It doesn't harden in quite the same way, uh, in my experience. And so, yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think we're often, and I think maybe in some ways that's what this era is all about. Um, you know, the last five years is we walk around being polite a lot of the time, like pretending we're not angry and we're really angry <laughs> and we're usually really angry at ourselves and we have to actually experience that and develop kindness towards that and, and let it soften a little bit, you know, because at the end of the day, the problem with self-aggression is you're already doing the best you can. You know, I see this having an almost four year old daughter is it's like, she's doing the best she can, you know, like she, she cannot, she's an amazing person. She cannot regulate her emotions yet, you know? So what's the point of getting mad at her when she has a meltdown? You know, it just, it's like, it's, you know, I mean, we may as well just get, you, you know, those, you know, when you get angry at inanimate objects, you know, you step on something and you get mad at the thing you just stepped on. Like, that's what a lot of aggression is. You're like, you're like getting mad at something in a way that has actually no effect and just a lot of detriment because then we grow harsher with ourselves, and then we want to be with ourselves even less, you know? Right. It sucks. <laughs> that's why I think humor is really important too. That's the other thing about meditation is you like at a certain point, our explanations for the universe kind of just fall apart. You know, you, you can't figure it all out, you know? So at a certain point, you just kind of like have to laugh at yourself a little bit. Mm -hmm. that you're trying to like create this schema of right and wrong, you know, and, and really, really make everything really intense. And at a certain point, you're like, this is hilarious, you know? And ironically, that's when I think after we develop a sense of humor, in my experience, is when you actually start caring about right and wrong, you know, in a more gentle way, you know? Yeah. Creating space to poke holes in like the solidity of things, you know? And I guess that's, that's part of my takeaway with everything being groundless. And in that terms, like I was just talking to a client this morning who has a lot going on in her life, just like mm. everybody. And, you know, I said, when, when you're banging your head against a wall, just remember that, you know, atoms inherently like the, the particles that build up the universe are mostly space there's really mm -hmm. not that much matter. And so how yeah. do you like poke holes in things so they don't feel so solid and unworkable? And I, I guess that, that's, that's what's interesting to me about like this idea of emotional security or security in the world and that you're actually teaching people to un, like unlearn that, that yeah. Yeah. there's well, more I, space. I also think Western psychology on this point of like the notion of a secure attachment, right? Um, and sorry that my metaphors 
involves small children, but, but that's right. That's, that's where that theory came from is this strange situation where the child is with somebody they really trust. Um, and then they're with a strange, a stranger who's not going to harm them in any way. And they, um, their primary caregiver leaves and then they're with the stranger for a while and then the caregiver comes back. Right. So that stranger is like the disorienting experience. Right. And so a secure attachment is a kind of adaptability. Like you love the safe base of the universe. Like your primary caretaker is home. Uh, you know, if they're a safe and loving home, which not all of us have. Right. And that's, that's another whole conversation. And then you're able to adapt to a situation that's more groundless, we might say, in, in the Buddhist teachings. And then you're also able to adapt to a return to home, you know. And so th that's even the Western psychological definition of a secure attachment feels like it has this quality of adaptability, you know. And it kind of has relative and ultimate truth built into it in the sense that you have you have your stable base. We actually are like, we're not trying to just say, screw everything. It's all going to disintegrate. What's the point of loving anybody? What's the point of, you know, having a career, having an anything, you know, it's, it's all going to fall apart anyway. Um, but we're also not trying to like, we're, we're trying to actually develop a sense of okayness and fundamental okayness when things fall apart, you know, which is, which is that zone where we're kind of like lost in the universe, you know? And so I think that's the really interesting combination of being a, to me, trying to be a practitioner and trying to be a more awake person is that combination of like, yes, you want to create emotional security, you know, but the moment you fix that emotional security to this person always needs to be this way for me to feel okay, um, it becomes incredibly unstable because that's what reality is, you know? And so we're trying to be both secure and non-attached at the same time. And I think that's really, my guess is that's what a more um, well-adjusted cancer would experience is that there's a kind of stability and an ability to trust other people um, mixed with like an okayness with kind of being a little lost, you know, that's tough to let go of the reins. Mm. You know? Yeah. And that's a lot of what you spoke of is there's so much that is out of our control. And what we do have management over is our responses to things most of the time. I mean, of, of course, we're going to be reactive to that thing that we stepped on. But then we can take pause and consider how like ridiculous it is. Just move on. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't every sign have to deal with uh, the creation of emotional security? When you say it's primarily about cancers, that's the struggle with it is something that cancers struggle with, right? And uh, yeah, that, that's how I feel a lot of the time. Yeah. <laughs> sort yeah. of toggling back and forth between those two and not always doing it perfectly. But um, I do think that's kind of the, the practice for those of us who do feel more emotional or intuitive and and look for our tendencies to look for like can i trust you you know are you going to stay with me you know <laughs> are you is it going to be okay you know mm -hmm. yeah
Right. That, that those are the lessons that you've kind of inherited in this lifetime. And mm. with your sun, moon and Jupiter all in the 12th house, it, there's a greater emphasis on this idea of abandoning hope mm. and um, abandoning emotional security and being able to to master that, that letting go of what's in your way of ultimate peace and serenity. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, that, there's, there's no more cancer thing to, than uh, landing on the traditions that are meaningful and nourishing cancer, nourishing to our human development. So thank you for sharing that. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. This is, this is the first time I've ever been asked in public to speak as a cancer. And other than just, you know, really enjoying talking to you, Lauren, it's it's been a really interesting exercise to try to link my thoughts to like what I know of being a, a cancer and a triple cancer. So it's, it's been tried quite a treat. <laughs> well, I'm appreciative. Thank you. When I was 12, I was trying to be cool. Cause I wasn't. Um, and being a nerd or a geek, which I was, was a bad thing, you know? And I feel that's one of the things I'm most appreciative of, like, uh, especially Gen Z is, uh, and millennial culture is like the idea of being a nerd is not a bad thing anymore. It's actually kind of a badge of honor. So um, my message to my younger self is like, stop trying to be cool, you know, because you're actually going to succeed the most when you kind of embrace, you know, this more emotive, intuitive quality and 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 combine it with a mind that understands different intellectual frameworks. That's that's what I've always been able to do. But um I think to a current younger person, it's like, um, you know, I, I, I do think there's a lot of wisdom from the past that is really useful and we shouldn't abandon it. We shouldn't burn it all down or abandon it completely. But I also think the hierarchical structures of the past are basically useless to us now. Um, and, and so if there is a way younger folks to, and I think you're already doing this, but to actually really study the wisdom traditions of the past, to extract the wisdom teachings um, and abandon the hierarchical teachings. Because that's what I found. That's what I feel about the, the um, Shambhala teachings, especially. Um, and, and I feel this way about a lot of Buddhist teachings, that the, the wisdom teachings are so evergreen prescient, but the the hierarchical teachings are at this point in human history, completely useless <laughs> to, to end with a strong, strong argument. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's why I'm not, maybe that's why I'm not a homebody because I always <laughs> wanted to like practice that. So like, let's go out into the, let's go out into the cosmos and, and <laughs> float and see, see how scary it feels. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, I affirm that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm so appreciative of you making time today. And, you know, I don't know if there's anything that you had on your heart that you wanted to share with like either a former version of yourself. Like if you could talk to 12 year old Ethan, oh, or man. maybe a younger person out there who may resonate with this talk. Do you have any final words? Yeah. Well, oh man, 12 year old Ethan. I mean, I feel like the Gen Z kids as a late, as a like tail end generation Xer myself, uh, I feel like the Gen Z kids get this a little bit more. And that was Ethan Nickturn 
Buddhist meditation teacher, author, cancer extraordinaire. I want to thank him again for joining me. And after listening to that recording and doing some editing with it, I realized that it was not in my head that I was in a bubble. (laughs) I thought that my allergies were acting up, but in fact, it was a duplicated recording. So um, I'm sorry about the technical difficulties there. Uh, Still worth it to me to listen to this conversation. Um, You can find Ethan's work just by Googling his name, Google, that's a fun word, Uh, or check him out on Instagram where he's constantly posting insightful, thoughtful quips, meditation-related offerings, um, and a lot of activism, turning our inner work and putting that out into the world. What a great conversation on all things related to the mind and our feeling of home. I'm Lauren K. Hickman. This is the Inspired Astrology Podcast. You can find me on Instagram at Lauren K. Hickman. You can sign up for the Moon Mailer and get my bi-monthly full moon and new moon reports, which I've been doing for a number of years now. Uh, You can find me in person, sometimes in Des Moines, Iowa, mostly in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, but always available virtually online. I'm offering 20% off uh, virtual readings right now. You just enter uh, offer code virtual or DM me or email me or text me, whatever, and we'll get that scheduled. I'm so excited for events coming up in Des Moines. I will be back in my hometown, seeing clients, doing Reiki, doing astrology at Kin and Hinterland. Stay tuned for that one. I'm going to be at a music festival, guys. <laughs> Thanks again to Ethan. That was a great part of cancer season. What a treat uh, to speak to an old friend and a wise soul. You take good care of yourselves. Stay inspired.